Welcome to everybody. My name is Jeremy. I'm the lead pastor. This is Dathan, the worship leader at our Shingle House campus. In the first service he prayed, he didn't pray it here. The first service he prayed that I would preach with clarity. Uh, say, 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 what did you say? Clarity and concisely. I would, I would preach clearly and concisely. Yes. That's, what you, that's what you pray. What's, what's concisely mean? Short. <laughs> Brief. Brief in few words. I'm glad you didn't include that in your prayer, your prayer in the second service. Thank you. Dathan's actually going to be leading worship at our Wellsville campus. So you guys, right? On June 26th, you'll see him in a couple of weeks. Next week? Two weeks, two weeks, two weeks. Can we get, let's get to the sermon, okay? Let's get to the sermon. We, we, we know you guys want God's word. It's so, so awesome to be here with you guys here in Shingo House. It's, it's clear that God is doing a great work. This just keeps growing and growing every time I come here. New faces, people's lives are being changed. Praise God for that. Amen. Amen. Um, we're going to be in James, the book of James. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn with me to the book of James. We just finished a series um, reading through another book. It wasn't the book of the Bible. It talked about the Bible. It was a book called Gentle and Lowly. Some of you have read that book, got that book, enjoyed that book. I'm probably still working through it because it's longer than the sermon series. Um, sermon series is called The Heart of Christ. So we're going to transition into a new sermon series on another book. This is a better book because it's the Bible. And so we're going to look verse by verse through the book of James over the next 12 weeks this summer. And you are just going to be entrenched in what James is all about. And I'm really, really excited about it. It's very practical. It's one of my favorite New Testament books, favorite books of the Bible for that matter, because it's like, I'm a simpleton, right? If you're a simpleton, you can, you can appreciate this. You don't have to have a really big commentary to figure out what James is saying. It's just like, here it is. And you can follow it and do it. And uh, we're going to enjoy it and grow from it. My hope is that we'll grow and become more like Jesus as a result of it. So I figured since we're going to spend the next 12 weeks talking about a book called James, wouldn't you want to know who James is? Sure. Let's, let's talk about that. So we'll read verses, uh, James chapter 1, verse 1 to kind of set up the series of where we're going to be. And uh, this is who James is. James introduces himself as a servant of God. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion or uh, the, the churches or the believers that were scattered from Jerusalem as a result of persecution. So that's the audience. You got to keep in mind, James chapter one is going to talk a lot about trials. If you're going through a trial right now, this is for you. If you're going to go into a trial Next week or next month, this is for you. And if you just come out of a trial, this message is for you. In fact, the next three messages are going to be directly to you, and he's going to have a lot to say about that. Well, the original readers were carrying a lot of heavy weight, um, much more than what we often carry, because again, these were people who were literally taken from their homes and had to, they were forced to live elsewhere. They were starving. They were being persecuted for their faith. So while we're not we're not dealing with the same type of trials as these believers are. I'm sure that each and every one of us are carrying some type of hardship that James is going to speak into. And so he's writing to these people. He's writing to these believers. And notice how he introduces himself. He says, I'm a servant of God. We're going to give a little quick introduction to what James is all about and who he is. But I love the fact that when James has an opportunity to introduce himself, he doesn't name drop. He calls it how it is. He's a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Like if you were, the first thing that you'll notice in the introduction, James is a half-brother of Jesus. Go ahead and put that up on the screen. Um, if, if you were a relative, a sibling of Jesus, and you were commissioned to write a book of the Bible or write anything, wouldn't you do a little bit of name dropping? Like, hey, 
You should listen to me because I'm Jesus' brother, right? He didn't do any of that. He starts off by saying, I am a servant. And I think the reason why that's, it's going to be hugely important for what we're going to talk about today. But if you were to be known for one thing, if you wanted to be labeled as one thing, wouldn't that be a great way to label yourself? A servant. Uh, the Greek word is uh, doulos, which is a slave. In that culture, a slave was someone who was owned by another person. Spiritually speaking, you were owned by someone else before you came to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. The Bible describes you were slaves to your sinful desires and passions before Jesus. But he changed your life, and as a result of him changing your life, you get a new title. You're a child of God. He calls you a masterpiece. But I also love how James describes himself. You're a servant. Don't get that mixed up, church. Because when you start thinking that life is about you, you flip the script. You've, you've got it completely wrong. God does not exist for you. You exist for God. And James, given the opportunity to address the churches that are scattered, who are going through hardships, he's got it right. He says, I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. So James, this is a guy, half-brother of Jesus. Imagine growing up with Jesus. Like you're in the home of Jesus. You're familiar with Jesus. Uh, you know his habits. You know if he snores or not. I mean, after all, Jesus was 100% human. He knows everything about Jesus. He grew up with Jesus. There's a great familiarity with Jesus. Um, he's the half-brother because he doesn't share the same father, right? So Joseph is James's father. They share the same mother. So you imagine like being in the home of James and Jesus growing up. You imagine the conversations that they would have? Like, I'm sure... James, if you, if you have an older sibling, you could probably relate to this, that did everything perfect. I'm sure my, my boys probably look at Aiden like this. Like you do everything perfect. You're the goody good, right? And they've got to live up to that person. Well, imagine if your brother was Jesus, right? That would be really, really difficult. I imagine his mom looking at Jesus saying, why can't, Jimmy, Jimmy, why can't you be more like Jesus, right? He's so perfect. He's so good. And I'm sure James is saying back to his mother, Mom, you think he's so perfect. You think he walks on water, right? <laughs> well, he's going to, right? But at that point in time, it was just two siblings growing up. And as a result, he didn't really have a relationship with the Lord. The Lord. He didn't follow him. In fact, his family didn't follow him. There's a scene in Mark chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 13 where his family is trying to get Jesus to come home, to kind of stop the things that he was doing, the, 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 the healing and the teaching, the preaching, claim that he's the son of God. Come home, come home. Nothing, nothing of this nonsense. They didn't have a relationship with Jesus until later on. Um, next thing, he identifies himself as servant of the Lord Jesus. Again, my impression is Typically, brothers don't call their older brother the Lord, right? <laughs> Doesn't happen. And that's not what was happening here either. It wasn't until something happened in James's life that he went from being familiar with Jesus to being a follower. So that's the thing that we see. The third thing that we see is that James, go ahead and put that on the screen. He moves from being familiar with Jesus to being a devoted follower of Jesus. So what changed? James is like a really big skeptic. So we know he wasn't following Jesus when Jesus was alive, but then Jesus was crucified. He rose from the dead. Before he ascends into heaven, he spends 40 days with his disciples. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it was a letter that the apostle Paul wrote to the, uh, the church at Corinth. Paul gives us this amazing detail. Not only that something that proves the, the, um, the truth of the resurrection, 
but also the validity of how James lived his life and, and how his life was changed. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 6, uh, 15 uh, verse 7. He says that he appeared to over 500 people. Jesus did. And then Jesus appeared to the disciples. And then Paul adds this little detail. And then he appeared to James. I love, I love the fact that before Jesus ascends up into heaven, before he goes to sit down at the right hand of God the Father, he shows himself to his little brother. Isn't that amazing? Rather than leave your little brother blinded, like literally he would not be a Christian, he shows himself to, to James. And in that moment, his whole life has changed. Do you realize that there's a point in your life, church, where you were just familiar with Jesus? That's all you were. I mean, you live in America, you, 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 you probably have access to a Bible, you have a Bible in your home, you've heard the name of Jesus. We have access to Jesus. We live in a culture that's very familiar with the Bible, or at least the concept, some of the stories of the Bible, but that does not mean that you've become a devoted follower of Jesus. This place is full right now. This is great seeing all these people at church in Shingle House. It's amazing, great win, but it's not an ultimate win if you don't fully follow Jesus. You're just going through the motions. And for James, that was much of his life until he saw Jesus for who he truly was, the risen, reigning, ruling Savior of the world. And before Jesus goes up into heaven, he shows James what it's all about. And James gives his entire life to Jesus. We know from the book of Acts, as you read church history, that he becomes one of the leaders of the early church, perhaps the leader of the early church, because there is this council that they had debating whether or not these um, Gentile Christians, which would be us, like non-Jewish believers, should have to become Jewish in order to become Christian, which guys that meant like surgery, which not, it wouldn't be cool, right? And so they're like, I don't think they need to go through all these rituals and the surgery in order to become a Christian. James is the guy that helped clear all that up. He was used by God in an amazing way. And so when we read the book of James, we, we see a guy who lived out his faith. His faith was very, very real. The, the next thing I, I want you to see about uh, the, the book of James and James himself is it's very practical. He's very practical. Um, this book, this is a scripture journal Bible, which, you know, we did this in the Gospel of Luke. We passed out these journal Bibles. Very helpful. I heard from people. It was great to be able to read on one side of the page and then take notes on the other side, whether it's during your quiet time or in a sermon. But um, this, this book... I mean, that's pretty short, right? It's something like 20-something pages. Um, it takes you about 20 minutes to read through. And when you read through it, there's, there are 108 verses. 59, think about this, every other verse that you read is practical in nature. Every other verse you read, James is telling you to do something, which is one of the reasons why we titled this series Faithful, How to Live a Life Full of Faith. At the end of the day, if you go through this series in 12 weeks and you know more about the Bible, you're able to maybe even quote certain parts of the Bible, but you have not, not gone to being a follower of Jesus, you will have missed the whole point. How do we live a life full of faith? James is going to show us how to be able to do that. He's not just going to have us get familiarized with a bunch of verses. He's calling us to actually live out our faith. Not to prove that we're Christians. We already know that. We're, we, we don't do good things so that we can prove that we're Christians. We do those things to validate that we're already Christians. So James is calling us to a deeper level of faith. One of the greatest verses in James where he says, do not be merely listeners of the word, but help me out if you know it doers, doers, because he also says a faith without action is a what faith? It's a 
It's dead faith. Some of you know this. That's, that's really good. He's very practical. Um, the next thing I want you to see is that he pulls from the Sermon on the Mount and uh, Proverbs 1 through 9. So it might get a little bit redundant over the next 12 weeks if you read through the book of James like a thousand times because it only takes about 20 minutes to read. What you could do is supplement your book of reading, uh, your book of James reading with the Sermon on the Mount found in the Gospel of Matthew and then Proverbs chapter one through nine because he's constantly, James is constantly quoting these two sources. Uh, James is often referred to as the uh, Proverbs of the New Testament. Um, many of you have read through the book of Proverbs. You know, Proverb a day keeps the devil away. <laughs> You've heard that before. And it's full of nuggets and wisdom. It's kind of like uh, YouTube. I shared this with the first service. You go to YouTube, not the bad parts of YouTube, but you go to the YouTube to like learn how to do something. So if you don't know how to change something in your car, what do you do, guys or gals? You go to YouTube, right? YouTube it and it'll tell you how to do something. Like the, the Proverbs acts like that because it's like all kinds of random information, but it's good. There, there's wisdom nuggets to be found. James is a lot like that. So when you read through the book of James, you're going to be like, what a, whoa, whoa. Like he's all over the place, it seems like. There is a connection, but he seems like all over the place. That's because he's, he's getting some of his source material from the book of Proverbs. Really interesting. So read those two sources. And then uh, finally, maybe I got a couple more. Um, he writes about trials. This is really important because when you get to know James's story, not only he became the leader in the early church, but he was martyred for his faith. Martyred being that he was killed. He was stoned to death because he could not stop talking about Jesus. So this is how I work. If someone's going to write about something and tell me to do something, but they're not doing it, do I want to listen? So James is like, I'm telling you to do something, and I'm going to put my faith where, that, where my mouth is. I'm going to do these things. And he did. His faith was real to the point where he could not stop talking about Jesus, and so they killed him. So we should probably listen to James because he has a lot to, to tell us. So James, James chapter one verses James chapter one verses one through four is where we're going to be today. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and pull them out. I'm going to read to you these next few verses. He's going to talk about trials, which I find funny because he gives his introduction. I'm James, and let's talk about trials. Isn't that great when you ever meet someone for the first time? Hi, I'm Jeremy. Let's talk about all your problems. Yeah, let's just get, let's get into the hard things of life. That's what James does. He gets into our business. He's got something really important to say, and I want to share a few things through these verses. So he says, uh, in verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or endurance. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. So there's a the few things that James uh, teaches us through this passage. The, the first thing that I want you to see is this, that trials are a part of life, right? We know this. And James points this out by what he says in verse two. Did you, did you catch it? He says, count it all joy, my brothers. What's the next word? When. So it's not an if, but it's a, it's a When. As I said earlier, you're either in a trial, you're coming out of a trial, or you will be in a trial. It's going to happen in life. You are 100% guaranteed to face hardships in this life. Some of you who are older and wiser can tell the younger generation, amen, that's true. Some of you who are younger, get ready, because life is really easy right now. And yet through it all, God has a purpose through it. 
which is so different. This is so foundational, church, to what you need to get from this message this morning. When you go through trials, God says that you need to learn something through that for a very specific purpose. That is not typically how, especially young believers, how they approach their faith journey. They are told that the gospel essentially is sin management. What I mean by that is if you believe in Jesus and then you live a good life, what's the expectation that you have from God? that he'll do good to you, right? And so I have a relationship with God. I'm living on a straight path. And as long as I stay on this straight path, life will go easy and things will go well. He'll actually answer the prayers that I pray. He'll give me the desires of my heart, which is one of the most misquoted verses in the entire Old Testament, as long as I'm good. But if I'm bad, now I got to worry. Maybe God won't answer my prayer. Where's the the bad things going to come from? And I won't understand why I go through difficulties in this life. And eventually, here's where it leads to. It'll eventually lead to you giving up on your faith. He says, when you go through these things, God serves a purpose. And so oftentimes, here's, here's how I did it in my early journey with Christ. I'm saved. I was saved at the age of 16 years old. And you know what? That year was one of the best years of my life. Love Jesus. I didn't have very many problems. I was 16 years old after all. Life was pretty good. And so it's like one of the best years of my life. I, I, I get to go to heaven. I love Jesus. I have a great relationship with him. And then over here, I know on this side of eternity, you know, I'm going to be with God in heaven. That's a great day. So I got a great day over here. I got a great day over here. I got a great season of life over here. And I got a great eternity over here. Here's the problem, church. What's in between? It's a four-letter word. Life. L-I-F-E. And life is not all that pleasant all the time, is it? So this is great. This is great. This, sometimes not so great. And if you don't know what to do with this in between, you will get really confused in your relationship with God. I I could put it like this. The best part of life is Jesus, right? If we could put it like, the best life is a life with Jesus. But here's the thing. A life with Jesus is not the easiest life. And if you think a life with Jesus is the easiest life, either A, you're not believing the gospel, or B, you just became a Christian yesterday. (laughs) You just haven't walked with Jesus. There's this misnomer that as long as I'm walking with Jesus, then I'll have an easy life, and God's going to remind us, no, 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 that's not true. And if you believe it, here's the danger. You will be severely disappointed with Jesus. Can I point it back to verse 1 where he says, what does James say? James A you realize you will, you will hate life and God's purposes for your life through trials if you don't see yourself as a servant. If you treat God as if God is supposed to be your servant rather than you be his servant, you won't embrace trials that you go through. And you'll eventually leave the church. You, you will. Like I've been a, I haven't been a pastor long, like a decade, a little over a decade, but I've seen the re- revolving door of people in churches. And it's, it's just sad. It's, uh, it, it, the sad thing is the people that I'm looking at today and the people that are watching online or the campuses, some of you are not going to be here in a year. And the reason why you're not going to be here in a year is because you're going to go through something in life and no one ever told you that trials were a part of life and that God has a purpose for those trials and ultimately those purposes are good, the things that we're going to talk about today. And so you just misinterpreted everything that, that God sent your way to do something in you so you left the church, you left your faith, you left those, those friends that God designed to help you through that. 
It's sad. Just because you didn't understand that trials were a part of life. Which leads to the second thing that I want to point out in this passage. And that is that trials serve a purpose. They absolutely serve a purpose. Here's how James puts it. He says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces something. It's like producing something. And the thing that it's producing, James says, is steadfastness, uh, endurance, or an unwavering spirit. That's what it produces in you. But, but that's for a purpose too. He says in the very next verse, let steadfastness, or that endurance that God is building in you, have its full effect that you may be perfect. Not sinless. That's not what James is talking about. We're not going to be sinless on this side of the grave. That'll come when we meet Jesus. But he's talking about wholeness, right? Something that's broken is now whole. Perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So the, the things that you go through, and you're going through them now, right? Or you will go through them. Maybe it's a loss of a relationship, a loss of a loved one. It could be a loss of a job, financial hardship. It could be a whole host of things that you're having to walk through in life. And, and teenagers have their own trials and hardships. Older adults have, have their issues as well. We all go through things that we need to understand that there's a purpose in those things that God wants to do in us. So let me ask you a question, church. Show of hands at all of our locations. How many of you, honestly, you would like to be more like Jesus this time next year? Show of hands. How many of you would like to be more like Jesus this time next year? How about that? That's great. That's, everybody raised their hand. That's, that's wonderful, right? How many of you How many of you want to go through cancer to make that happen? How many of you want to suffer the, just the devastating consequences of a divorce to see that happen? How many of you want to lose a loved one? We don't want that. How many of you want to lose your job, and through that losing of the job, God does something in your life that wouldn't have been there otherwise? I'm not seeing, I don't see the other campuses. I'm not seeing any hands raised, and maybe I didn't ask you to raise your hands, but no one's volunteering for those things, right? Why? Because we just don't like the pain. But yet, wouldn't you agree? Just take some inventory of your life, and some of the young people just need to listen because you've got no answer for this, but the older people, you've you got an answer for this. Take an inventory of your life and tell me the times where you grew the most in your life. And my assumption is the times that you grew the most, like really grew, like you became a different person, more mature, you just left the immaturity of your youth behind. The times where you really grew probably doubled as the times where you severely messed up or the times where you were severely hurt, or the times where you went through a severe trial or hardship in your life. That's how God works. That's how God works. He uses that pain. I I love what C.S. Lewis once said. He whispers in our joy, but he shouts in our pain. He gets our attention, and he uses that to shape us and to mold us. At the end of the day, that's why we exist. We exist to glorify God. I don't know if, you, if everyone has ever told you that before. You don't exist to get a good job. You don't exist to raise your kids. You don't exist to, to make an impact in this world that, that is in and of yourself. You, literally, you were born to glorify God. 
And whatever comes your way through sunshine and shadow, there's a purpose to making you more, image, more into the image of Christ so that you glorify God. That's why James uses the word testing. Um, you notice that word testing, the, the, the testing of your faith. He says, and, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete. For you know that the testing of your faith. The, the word testing is a um, uh, word that was taken out of the, the world in that culture where they would do like work like silversmith work. You, you know what I mean? I got a picture on the screen so you know what I'm talking about. But they would, you've seen this before, right? Where they would heat an object like gold or in this case, silver that I want to talk about, and they would heat the object up so much so that the impurities from the object, the silver, would rise to the surface, and the, the silversmith would wipe away or take away the impurities, and they would check it, and they would see how it is, and if it needed more work, they would heat it up again, the impurities would rise to the top, they would take away the impurities, and here's what they were looking for. The way they knew that the work was done is when the silversmith could hold up the silver and see his own image in its reflection. And what is true of a silversmith is true of, of our Lord Jesus Christ as well. He takes us through these trials to turn up the heat, to get literally the impurities to rise to the top so that he can remove them. And he does it until we die. And he does it until he can hold it up and see his image as a reflection so that we become more like Jesus. Does that make sense? There's a purpose behind those trials. The obstacle, if we are honest, is, as we just admitted earlier, we don't like to go through those trials. We like our comfort. If God could just speak to me, mold me, shape me on a beach, I'd be good, right? You'd be good. Or some of you, while you fish, that'd be good. Or you hunt, or whatever your hobby is, right? That would be so much more pleasant, but that's not how God makes spiritual men and spiritual women who are giants of the faith. He doesn't do it through a lake. He does it through a storm. Takes you through a storm so that you're made into his image. And so, so here's the challenge. The, the challenge is this. We need to learn to see trials not as an obstacle to our comfort, but an opportunity to become more like Jesus. Those were designed as opportunities to become more like Jesus. And when you don't understand that, you will get severely confused. So here's my encouragement, and I'm going to share this at the end too, but some of you are going through it right now. Hang in there. And here's why you hang in there. You don't want to give up too early. Because if you, get up, give, if you give up too early, think about what's at stake. Think about if God gave you that trial to walk through, gave you that hardship, get, like you shot yourself in the foot, but God's going to use it for good. Or someone else shot you in the foot, but yet God's still going to use it for good. Or you just live in a sinful, fallen world and you have to deal with the consequences of sin, but yet God's going to use it for good. So imagine if God brought that to your doorstep and he's got the purpose so that it would make you into his image, but yet you tap out and walk away from the church, or walk away from the faith, or walk away from your friends who are trying to help you through that, what would you sacrifice? Literally, you would sacrifice a treasure that Christ wants to hand you called maturity. He's bringing you to the point of maturity. He's bringing you to the point where you look more like him. Don't, don't give up too early, because you'll sacrifice that. H hang in there. Hang in there a little bit longer and see what he does. Now, that takes supernatural type of work in our life in order for us to understand how do trials connect with joy, which we're going to talk about this more next week 
and when we get in James chapter 5, but answer this question, church. If you were in a trial, if you were in a really difficult situation where you realized that you could not possibly handle this in your own strength, and your own wisdom, what's the number one thing in the world that you need at that moment? Jesus is a good answer. Jesus is always a good answer. More specifically, if you look to verse 5, what is it? Wisdom. If I know that God wants to do something good in me to make me more like him, that doesn't necessarily mean I know what to do in a given situation, does it? I might be clueless, and that might not help me at all. And I certainly might not be able to do what James has called me to do, which is our, our, our next point, which is to count it all joy. I need wisdom to be able to connect my trial with what God calls me to do and have joy in all the trials. And the only way I can do that is if God gives me the wisdom from above. And so he says, ask for it. What is that? Isn't that an amazing invitation? The God of the universe, full of wisdom, know, actually knowing why he put it there in the first place for your life, invites you to ask him for the wisdom so that you can connect the dots in your life so that you'll know how to respond and know how to act in a given situation. And we're going to talk about more of that next week. But before we do, I've I got to close with this final point, and that is number three, joy is the right response to trials. He says, count it all joy when you meet various kinds of trials. Count it all joy. Now, I don't know if, you, if you're like this when you read the Bible, but sometimes I'm just real. You know, I just say, I read the Bible and there were real people in real times and I'm a real person in real times. And so when he says, count it, count it all joy, count it, what's it? Trials. Count it all joy. You know what my immediate reaction to that is? Yeah, right. Like you tried doing this, James, and he would say, I've done it. I've been there, I've been there and, and, and carried heavier stuff. But I'm like, is, is that even possible? Is it even possible to have joy in the midst of difficult situations? If, is it even possible to have joy when you lose your job, when you, you, when you lose a loved one? Is it possible to have joy when people are looking down at you, gossiping about you? Is it possible to have joy, count it all joy, whenever you face trials of various kinds? And James would say, yes, but you really need to understand what joy is all about. Joy is not happiness. We've talked about this before plenty of times. Happiness is based on what? Your happenings. So I'm, ha I'm really happy. I told the first service, I'm really happy whenever Duke beats N North Carolina. I rub it in Tim's face, rub it in Pastor, rub it in, uh, Pastor Jonathan's face. I just, I'm just so happy when that happens. Circumstances are good. I'm happy. I, I love it. I'm so happy when my wife comes home and I'm home and, and she says, you know what? Let's do five guys burgers for dinner. And I say, oh yeah, I'm so happy. That's never happened by the way. So I'm not happy. So let's have Brussels sprouts for dinner. Actually, they're really good, but, uh, or broccoli, right? So happiness is based on happenings. Happiness, I've heard it said once before, happiness is circumstantial. Joy is theological. And what they mean by that is when you have a right belief system about, a right theology about trials and what they're designed for and how God uses them, then you can have joy. Now think about that. There, there's a logic there that does make sense that took me a while to get there this week. If I know who Jesus is, that he saved me from my sin, even though I didn't deserve it, he gave me grace upon grace, and he, he, he renewed my life, and he's promised me heaven. So we know who Jesus is. 
And you know, we know what he's trying to accomplish in our life, that he's always good and he always works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And we know that, that the way he works has a purpose for our good. If we know all those things, then when a trial comes and the end result is, I actually get to look more like Jesus if I respond in a godly way. If you're a Christian, why would that not be joy? Do you understand his logic? It's a gift. Those trials, while they might not seem it, have the ability to be turned into treasure that far outweighs anything that we can possibly go through. As Paul says, for we know that these are light and momentary treasures. These light and momentary treasures are accomplishing in us something of greater worth. And that is to be made in the image of Jesus Christ. So there can be joy. There can be joy but only if God is the goal. I got, I got two points for you that I want you to know. We can count trials as joy because God is using them for our good. Okay? When you're absolutely convinced that God works for the good of those who are called according to his purpose, which, by the way, you know that verse from Romans 8.28, right? It's a very well-quoted, very popular verse. It's like on coffee mugs. It's so great. It's like God works for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. He, um, God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We love that verse. Do you know what the very next verse says in Romans chapter 8, verse 29? It talks about how we are predestined to be conformed to his image. So in that context, church, what is the good that Jesus describes as? You being conformed into his image. He doesn't just work all things out for your good pleasure according to your wills and your wants. He works it out good so that you become more like Jesus. Does that make sense? So we can count trials as joy. We, we certainly can if, if God is using them for our good. And the second thing I wanted to leave you with is that trials will never be seen as joy if God is not your highest goal. Trials will never be seen as joy if God is not your highest goal. Trials are joy, though, if God is your goal. Trials are absolutely joy if God is your highest goal. This past week, kid you not, preach on James, James chapter 1 about trials. Monday, get a call. Hey, can we meet for lunch? Met with a pastor friend. And I thought it was just to kind of like catch up. And he unloaded one, like three trials, one after another, heavy things that he was going through. And I didn't have the heart to tell him, like, I'm preaching on James chapter one this week. And I hope I didn't have anything to do with this. But yet he, you know what he was asking? God, how are you using this in my life? The next day I get a phone call from an older friend. Uh, he's in his 70s. We do ministry together, helping replant churches. And he, he's known what we've gone through as a church and what we've walked through, what, what I've had to walk through the last couple of years. And he's just asking me how I'm doing, but he asks this question often. He says to me, Jeremy, have you asked God what he wants to do in you through this? Which is not the question I like to ask. I like to ask the why question. Like, God, why did this happen? Why, 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 is, why am I going through this? Um, that's not our concern. It really isn't. You'll be endlessly frustrated if you think you, you have to get the why question answered on this side of the eternity. God is much more interested in you answering the what questions and the how questions. What is God doing in this situation? How is he going to use it for your good so that you're conformed into his image? Over and over again, I'm getting this perspective from people that I talk to that are dealing with trials. And then you read the prayer chains and people are trusting God with their prayer requests through trials. There's a sense 
that they're trusting God through that trial because they believe that God is ultimately the, the highest goal. And when God is your ultimate goal, you can trust him through the trials and you can obtain a treasure that far outweighs anything that you'll have to go through in this life. Amen? Amen. So there's a few applications. Just get, be a little redundant here. I want to make sure you get them. The, the first thing is this. Hang in there. You know, hang in there. Uh, if you're here today, you went through a trial this week, come back to church, right? Keep consistent. Hang in there. Be patient enough and, you know, have some endurance, some unwavering faith, some steadfastness to actually see what God's trying to accomplish in your life. You're not David, you're, you know, you're not David, you're not Abraham, but look at their stories. Abraham had to wait 25 years for that son. David had to wait, I don't know if you know this, 10 years to actually become the king. You know what God was doing in that in-between time? Preparing them for what was ahead. And you might not be having a child. Some of you might not be having a child. Some of you might you're not becoming king. But God is certainly going to bring you through that period of trial so that he'll bring you to the point where he can use you in the future. But if you're impatient, you won't see that. Hang in there. The second thing is this. you got to believe, and this is the anchor, the anchor that I want you to walk away with. You have to believe no matter what you're going through that God is always good and that those trials serve a purpose. God is always good. God is always good. You can't preach that message more than enough in your life. I've told this in the first service. The three hardest funerals that I ever had to preach were because loved ones, um, widow, you know, a wife lost her husband, tragic accident, and two young people died. I, I. I have, I have, talk about wisdom. I have, I have nothing to share with people during those services. Like you, there's some funerals and, and weddings you do, like you can prepare, like, okay, I got some wisdom here. When, when tragedy hits, I literally, I don't know what to say. I don't even want to talk. Can I confess that as a pastor? Like, I don't even want to get up there and talk. It's so hard. And remember these three funerals, the only thing that I could even get out of my mouth after just bawling was like, I looked at those kids and looked at the people there and I just said, God is good. All the time, God is good. That's all I got. And if you don't believe that, and if you believe in the good times but not in the bad times, you're just, it's just not going to work out for you. The third thing I want to um, leave you with is that you need to choose to respond with joy. I think it is a choice. It's not an easy choice, but just gonna, I'm going to respond with joy. The devil's not getting me down. He's not going to have a foothold. I'm going to respond with joy. And I think there's part of that, which is the, the Spirit's work in our life. Look at Galatians 5, where Paul says to stay in step with the Spirit, put away the, the, the deceitful desires of the flesh. And one of the things that is a result of staying in step with the Spirit is you get love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, the list goes on. So it's a natural outflow of a relationship with Jesus. But at the end of the day, you got to grab hold of that and just choose. And in this moment, I'm not going to get down. It doesn't mean you don't, have to have a, you don't have to have a smile on your face all the time, but you can have joy through tears. You can have joy through difficulty because it's not circumstantial, right? And then finally, and we need to ask God for wisdom. We're going to talk more about that next week. Uh, I'll leave you with this story that I shared in the first service that James, the guy who wrote this letter, um, I was reading, doing some research this week. He, was, he had a nickname. Um, his title was a servant of God, which is a great title. But how about this nickname if you want to adopt this? He was known as Old Camel Knees. <laughs> Ladies, how would you like that, right? Hey, Old Camel Knees. The reason why, she, why he was uh, labeled that and given that nickname is because he spent hours, hours in the temple praying for his brothers, his Jewish brothers to come to faith in Christ. And so much so that his, his knees are literally worn out, crusty, wrinkled, looked like Old Camel Knees. What is James teaching us? 
the way that we can see what God's trying to do through those trials, the way we can have total confidence knowing that God is good and he's working good in all circumstances and he's making me more like him is when we pray. So when, you hit, when it hits, when it hits, right, when you go through trials, you're, you're going to do two things. You're going to walk away. Or you're going to see it as an opportunity to grow. And if you see it as an opportunity to grow, go towards Jesus Christ every single time. Amen? I want to invite our worship teams to come forward as we uh, close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for um, the beginning of the book of James. We're just getting started. We're excited as a church for you to speak through your word and to show us who you are and what you've called us to be. So many action items that we have, Lord, but today we hear your voice clearly, and it is to respond with joy. Count it all joy. Let steadfastness work its course in us so that we can be complete, lacking nothing. Everything that you want to do in us, we invite you to come into our life through all situations, the good, the medium, the bad, so that you can accomplish your purpose through us. Give your people today a greater degree, a greater perspective on life so that they can clearly see you are good and that you always work for their good. Lord, we love you. Help us look to you, the author and the perfecter of our faith, as Hebrews chapter 12 tells us, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. The greatest trial that has ever existed in the history of the world, you walked through Jesus with joy and you set the example for us as well. May we respond with you. You kept your eyes on the cross because you wanted a relationship with us to live with you, to love you, to walk closely with you. So help us honor that with our life and choose to respond in joy when we go through trials as well. And it's in Jesus' name we ask this. And all God's people said, amen.